Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 127. It's titled, Investing is Wayfaring. For many years, when flying into New York LaGuardia's airport, I took a yellow taxi cab ride into the city to arrive at my hotel. Unlike JFK and Newark airports, there isn't a convenient train connection to Manhattan from LaGuardia. I've always enjoyed the relatively short cab ride, despite at times feeling a little carsick due to the constant starting and stopping by cabbies driving in traffic with two feet on the car pedals. This past week, LaPrille and I arrived at LaGuardia, but we didn't take a cab. We spent the past week in New York City, but instead our designation was an apartment we rented via Airbnb in the Park Slope area of Brooklyn, about 14 miles south of the airport. A cab ride would have cost $80. Instead, I used the Uber app on my iPhone and joined a carpool for the trip south. Uber identified the driver, the type of car, and its license plates that would pick us up. The price was $24.23 and included dropping off our carpool passenger, Harriet, at a different location in Brooklyn. The ride was slow due to traffic, but going well until we were about three miles from our apartment. The way Uber works is the drivers have an app on their phones, which tells them who they're going to pick up and provides directions for getting there, step-by-step directions. When we know exactly where we're going, having step-by-step directions to our destination can be extremely helpful. The only requirement is to follow the steps. Unfortunately, our Uber driver wasn't very good at following directions. He would get frustrated when we were stuck in traffic and not wait for the designated turn detailed on the app. He would turn early and not necessarily in the right direction. At that point, the app would reroute him to the new quickest way to the apartment. There were several problems with our driver's methods. First, he actually had no idea where he was. He was entirely dependent on the app to tell him where to go next. Second, the app wouldn't let him zoom out, so he couldn't get a broader perspective of where we were. When he made an early turn, he really had no idea whether he was turning toward or away from the apartment because the app was zoomed in. And several times he tried to, he'd be scrunching the app with his fingers trying to get it to zoom out, but it just wouldn't work. Third thing, the driver spoke very little English. So whenever we tried to help, he'd get even more frustrated. At one point, LaPrell was just, even before we got, you know, before the driver was too frustrated, she asked, in conversation, you're going to be driving all night, in in the sense that are you, are you going to work all night as, as Uber? But he he took it as are you going to be driving us all night to our place of residence? And he and he got he got upset. 
This going in circles went on for about 25 minutes until we found ourselves in traffic on Interstate 278 in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights, where it was no longer easy to get off the highway and make a wrong turn. We just went with the flowing traffic. And at that point, the driver settled down, stopped trying to second-guess the app, and we made it to our apartment. When we know where we are going, the trip will go more smoothly if we follow the directions. Look up or zoom out to get a broader perspective in order to understand the lay of the land and have the communication skills to ask for help if we make a wrong turn or get lost. These tools and practices can be helpful even if we don't know the exact destination. When we only have a vague sense of where we are going, we are wayfinding. The American explorers Lewis and Clark were wayfinders. They didn't have a map as they explored the western United States in the early 1800s looking for the easiest route to the Pacific. They had compasses and a general sense of direction. They also had a telescope, microscope, chronometer to calculate longitude, and the book A Practical Introduction to Spherics and Nautical Astronomy. According to data compiled by National Geographic, Lewis and Clark spent $2,324 on equipment for their expedition. I assume this is in dollars, in their basically $1,803. Their inventory included boats, oars, camping supplies, clothing, medicine, armaments, and presents for Indians, including 4,600 sewing needles, 130 rolls of tobacco, 288 knives, 288 brass thimbles, 144 small scissors, and 25 pounds of colored beads. Other books they took was Barton's Elements of Botany. They took a four-volume dictionary, Richard Kerwin's Element of Mineralogy, and the Nautical Almanac of Astronomical Ephemeris, and Antoine Simon's basically History of Louisiana. So they had some books, and they had some tools, and they set out on their journey. They were wayfinding. When you're a wayfinder, you need to prepare for the unexpected. Some of their things worked out. Some of them didn't work out at all. It turns out many of the Native Americans didn't really like the beads, didn't care for beads. One of the, I think they took a big, I think a 55-foot keel boat that they were going to use that turned out to be somewhat of a disaster. In When I read the book on Daunted Courage, I, I seem to remember the boat just not working out. This was too big for what they were doing. Now, investors are also wayfinders. We only have a general sense of what might happen. There are no guarantees we will reach our destination. We can get in trouble as investors when we forget we are wayfinders and believe outcomes are certain, that if we just follow the correct formula, we will reach the wealth level we desire. In 1937, there were 30,000 cab drivers in New York City, ruthlessly competing for fares in a metropolis with a population of approximately 7 million. That year, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia signed the Haas Act that introduced a medallion system to limit the number of taxis. 13,566 medallions were sold for $10 each. Today, there are 13,000 
587 taxi medallions, serving New York City's population of over 8 million and 50 million annual tourists. When supply is limited and demand grows, prices increase. In 2014, taxi medallions were worth $1.3 million, a 16.5% annualized increase from 1937, one of the most steady, best-performing investments in the United States. Limited supply, though, and rising prices also invites competition. Today, there are 90,000 for-hire vehicles apart from taxis, many of which are drivers for Uber and Lyft driving their own vehicles. With the increased competition, taxi medallion prices have plummeted by 70% since 2014, bringing financial turmoil to many taxi drivers who borrowed money to buy those medallions. According to an article in the New York Post, in 1991, taxi driver Nino Rias scraped together a down payment to purchase a yellow cab medallion for $118,000. He says it was a good investment on a yearly basis, averaging about 10% of the value. We were counting on it, said Urbius. I told my kids I would give them each $200,000 for college. He used the value of the medallion to back a $600,000 mortgage on his home in New Jersey. But with plummeting medallion prices, Urias said through tears, quoted in the article, we are waking up in the middle of the night not knowing what our future is going to be. This is my retirement. This is all I got. I have nothing. Investing in taxi medallions seem like a predictable, safe investment with a known destination. This was a monopoly. How, what, what could go wrong? But instead, the outcome was as uncertain as any other investment. Prudent investors recognize they are wayfinders. And like Lewis and Clark, prepare themselves with tools or they have guideposts to to allow them to recognize there isn't any one formula that is going to get them to their destination, a retirement. They have to have certain skills, wayfinder skills. And, And the primary one... Probably the most important one is to just save more money and spend less. And I've talked about this in earlier episodes that at the FinCon conference I attended, there was a session on extreme retirement. And and the, the participants in there, the moderators, the panel suggested saving up to 50% of your income in order to retire early. Now, that, that could be very difficult for most people, but Generally, given low investment returns, individuals, households should be saving upwards of 15 to 20 percent or more of their income, which means there's going to have to be some spending discipline because the savings we can control. We can't control the return on our investment. We can control the amount that we're saving each and every month. Another way finding tool is to have is to diversify to have multiple portfolio drivers in our return multiple asset classes whose returns are determined by different things certainly stocks having bonds having real estate perhaps some gold maybe some master limited partnerships 
we can invest in our own education. One of our investments could be our own business. Now, we don't want to put all our money in that, just like the, this particular medallion Erbias did. I mean, all of his assets, sounds like, went into this medallion, and they leveraged that to buy a home. But I don't know what his other investments is, but we have to have multiple drivers. We have to have the margin of safety, protection in case things don't go as planned. Have some emergency savings. We need pockets of independence away from the financial system. These are all things I've talked about in earlier episodes. Other wayfinding tools include understanding the math and the emotion of investing. Understand what drives returns over the long term and understand how investor emotion can heavily influence those returns in terms of the level of fear and greed. We just need a broader perspective. We need to know where we are in terms of the current market cycle. So it it helps us with with wayfinding. And and this is something I I've given you know a lot of thought to. I've gotten some emails from members of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub and some non-members. And they're they're seeking on on the on the hub I do a monthly investment conditions report and we we take an objective look at at valuations. We look at economic trends, particularly purchase, purchasing manager indice data. And we look at market eternal. So we look at trend, momentum, the level of fear and greed. And, and one of the questions I got is, is, is the question is, how predictive are these tools? Is there enough data, is the question, to correlate these factors to figure out, can they absolutely predict where markets are going in the future? Another question, have you back-tested your investment conditions report? leading up to the financial crisis of 2008. Now, this, this report, is it essentially, I rank valuations red for bearish, yellow for neutral, green for more bullish. I do the same thing for economic trends and, and central bank trends and the same thing for market internals. And, and, and these are logical questions. And, and if I was a member, they were the questions I would answer. But the reality is, there is broad correlation with these factors, but it is not so tight that it can be predicted absolutely. This is not a quant model. This, these are wayfinding tools to figure out broadly where are we in terms of risk in the marketplace. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. 
And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. There was a study that I just read. It was by Vanguard. A number of Vanguard's authors is Joseph Davis, Roger Aliaga Diaz, and Charles Thomas. It was called Forecasting Stock Returns. What signals matter and what do they say now? This was done back in 2012. I'll link to it in the show notes, which you can get at moneyfortherestofus.net. This is episode 127. While you're there, you can sign up for my free Insider's Guide, and I'll email those show notes to you weekly along with a summary article. While you're there on the website, you can sign up for my free investment course right there on the homepage, Learn to Invest in Seven Steps. And if you're a U.S.-based listener, if you just want to text the word INSIDER to the number 44222, then you can get signed up for the Insider's Guide. Now, what they did, it was a pretty fascinating paper, and I like to read academic papers just to get some perspective. They used a number of different tools to figure out, and they ran regression analysis. So they took a, a particular indicator and then wanted to see how good was it at predicting stock returns, both short-term and longer terms. And and they used a number, and some of them didn't work, and and some worked better than others, and one that worked better than others was one of the tools on the Money for the Rest of Us hub, valuations. Their quote is, we confirm that valuation metrics such as price-earnings ratios or PEs have an inverse or mean reverting relationship with future stock market returns. Although it has only been meaningful at long horizons. And even then, P.E. ratios have explained only about 40% of the time variation and net of inflation returns. In other words, the R-squared of their model of the regression was only about 40%. So much of what was driving returns wasn't valuations. And that the valuations is the math. The other unexplained often is the emotion. One of the, the things when we talk about valuations being somewhat predictive of stock returns, it didn't really matter whether it was trailing one-year PEs or using cyclically adjusted PEs using 
average earnings over a 10-year period. On the hub, we, we, use, we show both the, the cyclically adjusted P.E. as well as the short-term P.E., and, and they are broadly predictive. One of the other charts, I, I pulled up a chart on Ned Davis Research. It was this Schiller price-to-earnings ratio for the MSCI All-Country World Index, and there, and there was a bucket chart. It would break it down by the bottom 20% of P.E., so those periods when the Schiller P.E. was in the bottom 20%, it had the, the highest 20% of the time where the P was the highest and they had the middle. And, and if you look at it, you'll see that the box, the range of returns for the, the lowest PE had the highest returns over the subsequent 10 years. And those with the, the, the most expensive price to earnings ratio had the lowest. But it was a range of returns. And that was one of the, the conclusions of this paper by Vanguard. And I absolutely agree with it. And we replicate it on the hub. It's not about a point forecast. Returns are going to be X over the next decade. It's about having a range of returns and understand the potential drivers of that. And so on the hub, we, we have 10-year forecasts for different asset classes. Now, bonds are pretty easy to forecast over 10 years. You can get a pretty tight connection between the forecast and what actually happens. Stocks, it's going to be a range and it's going to be dependent on valuation, but it's also going to be dependent on market internals, the level of fear and greed. There, I have, I've seen studies, and Ned Davis has studies, they have a model called Global Big Mo, and that gets incorporated into a lot of what we do in the hub in terms of market internals. But we're looking at trend and momentum. When their model is bullish, when market internals are, fa- are favorable, the stock market has gone up 22% on average the next year. And when it's bearish, it's gone down 18.7%. And when it's neutral, it's been 6.4%. So that's market internals. Economic trends. There is a paper that was written by Antonella D'Agostino and Bernd Schnatz, SC. S-C-H-N-A-T-Z. This was published a couple years ago. Again, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's titled Survey-Based Now Casting of U.S. Growth, a Real-Time Forecast Comparison Over More Than 40 Years. And what they did is all they were trying to see is purchasing manager industry data, how tightly correlated was it to GDP growth. And they found that PMI could explain about 51% of GDP two quarters ahead. So there was some predictability, but it was only 51%. And that is the problem with all quantitative models. They, they are somewhat predictive. They give you the lay of the land. They give you some broader perspective. They're not going to say, absolutely, this is going to happen. But as wayfinders, our choice is to not have anything to go out into the wilderness and explore without any type of inventory or tools to guide us to at least adjust our portfolio based on the current dynamics. We can go out or we can have the tools we have. I invest with some tools that I use and I've used for several decades now. They're the tools I use to manage money. And I'm the first to admit, are they absolutely predictive of what's going to happen? 
No. Have they helped me in terms of managing risk and reducing risk when the risk of a recession is high? Global recessions, when the U.S. involved is is included in the recession, the market has fallen 50, 45 percent. And that's that's important. So I I want wayfaring tools to make adjustment. But I'll be very upfront. They're not absolutely predictive, but they have helped me reduce risk going in to the Great Recession in terms of my personal assets. I cannot promise they'll help you or members of the hub, but it's how I invest. This is how I wayfare. But everyone's got to wayfare differently, and that is important. I got an email the other day. And from a listener of the show, and she she was asking some questions about the money for the rest of us hub. And there was a quote, and I, I, I'm not going to mention her name because I didn't ask permission to quote this. But she said, I have to say I am terrified of the current market and have not been able to move forward. And, I, and I've gotten similar emails, particularly as it relates to the election and how it's going to turn out and what the markets might do. After that, I'm going to share some data on that in a few minutes. But when he talks about wayfaring, she's not even in the boat. Some of these wayfaring tools that I use, such as valuations, such as looking at economic trends, helps us stay in the boat. And whether to raise the sails or lower the sails, it's very, very rare that we would ever get completely out of the boat. It would be an extreme situation. Most of the time, we're just holding on and having wayfaring tools to guide us to understand what is the lay of the land helps us stay in the boat, stay invested, and and not be beholden to fear over the markets. One of the fears I've I've gotten that, that, and we've had some discussions on the hub about this, is the outcome of the election. Should we be reducing risk because whoever might get elected and and what might happen there. Now, part of wayfaring is understanding the historical context. And during an election, this is data from Ned Davis, when there is no recession going on, such as today, during, on election day, a presidential election, the incumbent party has won 17 out of 24 times. And of the seven times the incumbent party lost, four of them, there was a recession within the next eight months. When there has been a recession on election day, the incumbent party has lost four out of five times. Now, we were just basing it on history we would say the odds are the incumbent party, the Democrats, will win this election. Now, that's just historical wayfinding context. That doesn't mean that's what's going to happen. Now, nobody knows what's going to happen at the outcome of the election. Generally, after election, the markets have, have done, done just fine because markets overall t- tend to go up. I've said to members on the hub, if they're, if they're that worried about what's going to happen, then reduce risk. That's okay. If you're, not, if you're concerned about what's going on, you can lower the sails and, and ride out a potential storm that no one can predict. The type of predicting we try to do on the hub is to look at market conditions and see 
if a storm is likely to come. Not that we're saying it absolutely will come, but just part of the wayfaring. Right now, recession does not seem imminent, and, and that suggests I'm not reducing risk because of fear of the election, because the reality, I don't know how it will turn out. I'm much more interested to see what happens after the election in terms of whoever wins and what they do and the potential impact on the economy. But if, if we are trying to invest on the leading edge of the present, all we can do is look at the current conditions, recognize thing we're, we're doing probability forecasts. We're looking at range of outcomes. We're not doing point-based forecast and trying to make an adjustment based on the outcome of a specific election is a very specific point-based forecast. I don't think it can be done. The academic data says it shouldn't be done. Having said that, we have to manage our emotions. And if, if, if we're ready to jump out of the boat, then maybe we reduce our risk a little bit just so we can stay invested. And if we're not in the boat at all, then wait till after the election. And then invest and get invested and work on averaging in. And, and, and that's how we invest. There just isn't an easy, formulaic solution. This is not like taking a subway in New York City where you know exactly 99.99% of the time you're going to arrive in your destination and you're going to follow the exact tracks. That's not what investing is. That's subway riding. We're wayfinding. We're like Lewis and Clark. Unknowns. All we have is the guides, the conditions, and we need to make our choices based on whatever tools you want to use. I have There's tools that I use on the hub. It's how I invest it. You need to find the tools that you're most comfortable with and invest in that way. So that is episode 127. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net if you want more insight or more guidance, a mentor, you can find that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I'm not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. I don't do that. Simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week. <music>